to the Gospel of Mark. We are finishing up chapter 7 this morning, and we're going to be actually saying goodbye to Mark for three weeks as we look elsewhere in the Bible um, for about a month's time. Uh, so I thought it would be good for us to, to finish chapter 7 so that when we jump back into Mark, we can just round it off with starting out in chapter 8. Uh, but we will be back. This will just be the last week in Mark uh, for a little bit. I really do encourage you to have a Bible open because this is a, what we're going to see is Jesus has a very strange encounter with a woman. And uh, so that you don't get lost in the weeds as we're following what exactly Jesus is doing, it would just be good for you to have your Bible open and following along as we track through. But let me read this for us. I'll start reading in verse 24 all the way to the end. Mark 7, starting in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Father, as we look at this text, we pray that you would give us understanding. You pray that we would give, a, give us hearts to love Jesus more as we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I want to start out by reading a quote that I appreciated from Kent Hughes this week. Kent Hughes writes, and he says, I am convinced that if every man and woman would read the Gospels through, we would witness a spiritual harvest beyond what the world has ever seen. I say this for two reasons. First, most people have in their minds one of a number of distorted caricatures of Christ. The other reason I believe a reading of the Gospels would bring a vast ingathering is that Christ in the scriptures as portrayed in the Gospels is radically winsome. That is, if people see him as he really was and is, 
they would by the millions find him absolutely irresistible. I hope up to this point in our study of the Gospel of Mark that you have been drawn even deeper and attracted to the person of Jesus, as I have been. And if you haven't been drawn closer to Jesus, it's not the Gospel of Mark's fault, it's my preaching's fault. Uh, but what we've seen time and time again up to this point is that Jesus surprises us, he persuades us, and he even confuses us in the most delightful of ways. And what I so love about Jesus so far in Mark is that he repels the kind of people that are repellent to us, people who think that they have their act together and uh, are just kind of full of themselves. But he attracts two different kinds of people when we read the Gospels. He attracts people who find themselves to be sinners and people who find themselves to be sufferers. You read all the Gospels time and again, the people who were attracted to Jesus were people who knew themselves to be sinners and sufferers. And that is good news, because you and I find ourselves to be sinners and sufferers. In this text this morning, Jesus encounters in two surprising places two sorry people, one who is a sinner and one who is a sufferer. The first one is a woman, the second one is a man. The first one is labeled as a dog. The second one is disabled. The woman seems to be unworthy of Jesus' help, and the man is unable to help himself. And both of them need the power that only God can give to get relief. And each one of them receives the grace and help of Jesus. What we're going to see this morning, these two accounts encourage us to show us that Jesus' power goes deeper than our helplessness, and his grace goes deeper than our unworthiness. His power goes deeper than our helplessness, and his grace goes deeper than our unworthiness. Now, the, the text starts out by telling us that Jesus goes to a very surprising place. Take a look at verse 24. In verse 24, Mark says that from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, we read that in our day, and we say, okay, cool, so he's in Tyre. But what we often don't realize is that Jews would rarely go to Tyre. Tyre was a thoroughly pagan, thoroughly Gentile place. It really was the pinnacle of paganism, and it was very antagonistic against Jewish people. Just to get in our minds the reputation that Tyre had, if you remember in the Old Testament, that evil woman we read about, Jezebel, this is where she was from. She was from this area, uh, Tyre. So this is a place that Jesus and, uh, and people, uh, Jewish people uh, were not expected to go, and yet Jesus goes. He wants his presence and his grace to go into the darkest places, into the most evil of places. He wants his light to shine. And though he goes there intentionally, we're told in verse 24 that he actually wants to fly under the radar. He doesn't want necessarily to be uh, seen. Take a look again at verse 24. It says that he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Now, how did that work out for him? Mark says, yet he could not be hidden. He's Jesus. He's got a big following. Anywhere he goes, people know he's in town. Jesus is about to have an encounter that his disciples would never forget. Take a look at verse 25. 
In verse 25, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Can you imagine the scene? Jesus and his disciples were probably enjoying a moment to themselves, having some free time, probably lounging back. Maybe they were having some snacks. We don't know. They're just enjoying time to themselves, and all of a sudden, bursting through the door comes this hysterical woman who throws herself down at Jesus' feet and is begging and imploring him to help save her daughter, who is demon-possessed. What a picture. Now, this woman, from a Jewish perspective... She has very little going for her in her approach to Jesus. From a Jewish perspective, her credentials are some bad credentials. She has three strikes against her. Number one, she's a woman. In Jesus' day, especially among the Jews, unfortunately, women were seen very much as second-rate citizens. They were only as good as what they could do for the men. But number two, strike two, we find in verse 26... This woman was a Gentile. She was someone who a Jew would have thought would be an unclean person. And strike three, worst of all, she's the worst kind of Gentile. We're told in verse 26, she's a Syrophoenician by birth. Now, Matthew in his gospel helps us understand the significance of that. He clarifies that she was a Canaanite woman. What do we know about the Canaanites in the Old Testament? God had commanded for them to be exterminated by the Israelites. So these were like the filthiest of the filthy in Jewish mindset. A rabbi would never entertain such a person as this woman. In fact, I had to laugh this week. I learned in my study that some of the most serious rabbis were known as the bruised and bloody rabbis. Because what they would do, they were so serious about staying away from Gentile woman, women that when they would be walking through the marketplaces, if they saw one, they'd cover their eyes and they'd just walk around and they'd bump into things. And they'd have bruised faces and bruised, uh, oh no, a woman, I better close my eyes, you know. So why would this woman come to Jesus knowing the reputation that she might have in his mind, in his eyes. She had faith in Jesus. She didn't just have faith in his power to help her. She had faith in his grace. That she, despite who she was, could come to this Jesus of Nazareth and be received graciously. You ever feel like in your desperation that you actually can't come to Jesus because you feel yourself to be unworthy and so you just stay away. This woman is teaching us you can bring your desperation and your unworthiness to the feet of Jesus. He will receive you. Well, how is he going to receive her? We learn that in his reply to her is sometimes how he replies to us. What we see first if we could advance, is Jesus uh, tests persevering faith. Jesus tests persevering faith. Now, this is one of the strangest conversations Jesus has with anyone in all of the four Gospels. When we look at verse 27, his reply to her seems harsh, it seems cold, it seems demeaning when we look at it at face value. Let's take a look at how he replies to her. This poor woman comes, she throws herself at his feet, she's being reverent, she's being um, 
uh, reverent. And in verse 27, what does he say to her? He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yikes. When I read that, it reminded me, it sounds like what my grandfather used to say when he would come to our house and our dog would come and try to greet him. He would say, beat it, mutt, is what he would say. It sounds like Jesus is saying to this woman, beat it, mutt. Get out of here, dog. We have to be careful to understand what he is saying and what he is not saying. Jesus is saying that there is a distinction between her and those who he seems to be indicating are his first priority. What he's doing, he's employing language here that the Jews commonly use for the distinction between a Jewish person and a Gentile person. The Jews referred to themselves as the children of God. And anyone who is not Jewish, who is a Gentile, they often referred to as the dogs. So in the household of God, the Jews were the kids. They had the first priority. God had all of his attention set on them. And then anyone else is like a dog. They don't really matter. They're second rate. God doesn't care as much. But what he's not saying is that he won't help her. Look again carefully at what he's saying. He's saying, let the children be fed first. In other words, I'm willing to help you, but I have others who are a bigger priority right now. This is confusing. And Jesus is intentionally being confusing. What is he doing? Well, first, we have to acknowledge that Jesus is allowed to say whatever he wants to say, whenever he wants to say it, to whoever he wants to say it. But he's not actually being harsh here. What Jesus is doing is he is testing this woman's faith. It's as if he has her on the line, and now he's going to reel her in. Sinclair Ferguson in his commentator said, er, commenta commentary said, it's as if Jesus is closing the door on her to see just how hard she'll try to keep it open. Because this woman, this Gentile woman, understands something fundamental about the heart of God that many Jews had forgotten. And that is that God has a heart for all who would seek him by faith, no matter what their background is, Jew or Gentile. When we read the Old Testament, of course we see that God did give a privileged status to the nation of Israel. He did make a distinction. But if we read closer, what we'll see is who was the father of the nation of Israel? Abraham. And what was he before he became God's person? He was a pagan until God called him by his grace. When we see Israel leave Egypt to go into the promised land, who goes with them? We read that a multitude of the pagan Egyptians join them to go into the promised land because they themselves had become followers and worshipers of Yahweh. When you read the law of Moses, like I am in my Bible reading plan right now, I'm in Leviticus, you can pray for me. Um, what you see all throughout the law of Moses is God's sprinkled ways and regulations for how Gentile people could join into the worship of the Israelites, to be one with them in relationship to God. And the pinnacle, we read the Old Testament prophecies of what the Messiah would come to do. 
He would come to bring salvation to Israel and to the nations. I love in uh, Isaiah 49, verse 6, speaking to the Messiah hundreds of years before Jesus would come, God speaks to his son, and this is what he says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant just to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God wants all nations. That's why Paul says in that famous verse in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the non-Jew, to the Gentile, to the Greek. So what, this, what Jesus is doing here, he's putting this common Jewish overemphasis that w- it p- was prevalent in his day on the, on the distinction where Jews would essentially say, if you're a Gentile, you don't matter to God. He's putting this before her to see just how firmly she believes in God's willingness to help her. Will she persevere in her faith? Will she plead the promises of God that she knew to be true? Will she? Take a look at verse 28. How does she respond? Verse 28, she answered him, yes, Lord. She agrees with him. That's amazing. She starts out humbly by saying, I am a dog. Lord, I know I am a sinner. I'm not worthy. You're right. I'm no better than a dog in God's sight. But her faith makes her go deeper and to plead the promises that she knew to be true. She goes on to say, yet, yes, Lord, yet, what? Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Do you get what she's saying? Jesus, I know I'm unworthy. I'm like a dog in God's sight. But I'm not even asking you for the leftovers that the children eat. All I'm asking you is for crumbs. Would you just give me your crumbs? I have so much faith in your power and ability to help me that all you need to do is give me your crumbs. Your crumbs would be more than enough to save my daughter. Friends, do you believe that even just the small crumbs that God could give us is more than enough for all you need in this life? I love this woman. She's showing us what true faith is. True faith is humble. We come to God knowing that we're dogs, knowing that we're sinners, we're unworthy. True faith is humble, but it's also hounding. We know the promises that God has given us and we plead them, we persevere, we keep hounding. One of the commentators, James Edwards, said that this woman is like the female Jacob. Just like Jacob wrestled with God and would not let him go until he got his blessing, this woman will wrestle with Jesus until she gets her blessing. Will she get her blessing? We see next, Jesus blesses persevering faith. How does he respond to this statement? Verse 29, he says, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. I love in Matthew's gospel what he records Jesus of saying to this woman. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Oh, woman, how great is your faith. In verse 30, she goes home, she finds her child in bed, and the demon is gone. Can you imagine how the disciples must have talked about this years later when they'd gather together? 
hey guys, do you remember that one time Jesus took us on that crazy trip to Tyre, to the pinnacle of paganism? Yeah, another one would say. And that woman, do you remember we were just hanging out and that woman came bursting through the door and threw herself at his feet? Yeah, and Jesus was kind of rude to her. It seemed like he was being rude. Yeah, I think what he was doing, he was testing her faith. She persevered. I wonder where she's at today. I wonder what, what she's doing right now. See, what does this mean for us? Sometimes in our lives, in moments of desperation, we come to God in faith, asking for help, and sometimes, there's no better way of saying it, God in the mystery of his ways seems to give us a harsh answer. He seems to turn a cold shoulder. I didn't do this in the first service, but I felt led to do it in this service. One way that I have experienced this in my life, many of you know the story, I hope you're not sick of this story. Hannah and I prayed for years to have a child. We were diagnosed with infertility. And a year after uh, we were, got that diagnosis, we were able to get pregnant. In my journal, I just want to read some of these journals of how we had to persevere in faith. This is December 4th, 2019. I wrote, yesterday Hannah came home with a beaming smile to tell me that the doctor gave her a positive pregnancy test. We praise the Lord. However, and then I go on to write a bunch of complications with the pregnancy. I said, so now we continue into round two of praying hard. I don't ever remember striving with the Lord as I have this past week. This week's prayers were marked by pleading for God to show himself by his power and goodness, his limitless ability to provide and supply every desire. I've been telling him we're asking for a good thing, that we want the opportunity to raise up a child who will be his servant, that others are praying, and he would get great praise and glory if he answered, and answered he has, but with still more to trust him for. Help, O Lord. Help us. Six days later, I write, yesterday morning, God answered our prayer. We have been officially informed that our pregnancy is not viable. We will lose our baby. The next day, last night, Hannah miscarried. I don't question the goodness of God. My child knows firsthand now the love and great care of their heavenly father. He will care for them perfectly, whereas I would have made so many mistakes. My child will be just fine. Though my pain is great, my trust in God's steadfast love is greater. I find comfort in his word. A year later, no, sorry, two years later, dreading tomorrow, Father's Day, Two years since losing our baby, three years of praying and pleading. Happy Father's Day to everyone, but no one's going to say it to me. I still wait and pray. A month later, a uh, month later, we uh, begin the adoption process. This week, Hannah and I found out that the adoption we'd been looking for forward to for a month has fallen through. And then, 
a month after that, good news has finally come. An adoption. A child that will be ours. A year after that, Canaan Jeffrey Swift was born on October 7, 2022 at 5.12 p.m., weighing in at just under six pounds and 19 inches long. What if this woman hadn't persevered? What if you hadn't persevered through all the trials that God put in your place to plead the promises, to keep seeking? What is God doing in our lives when it seems like he's beginning to shut the door? It very well could be. He's testing our resolve. Hannah and I learned how to seek the Lord. You will learn how to seek the Lord. This woman learned to persevere and to seek Jesus, to lash herself to the promises that she knew to be true of God and to not stop until she got her blessing. The book of James tells us, you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown. I love what the Gettys say in their hymn, when trials come, no longer fear, for in the pain our God draws near to fire a faith worth more than gold, and there his faithfulness is told. There his faithfulness is told. Well, how are we doing? Are we okay? We have a whole other encounter. Are we, are we all right? All right. You won't become deaf like the deaf man. You won't wish me to become mute like the mute man. All right. Encounter number two. What do we see in encounter number two? What we see next is Jesus has healing power for helpless people. Jesus has healing power for helpless people. In verse 31 and verse 32, he goes from one Gentile place to another Gentile place. We see that he is in the Decapolis. Remember, the Decapolis is the place where he healed the man who had the, uh, the legion of demons. And he told him, go out and tell everyone what I've done for you. Well, now Jesus is back. And in verse 32, they bring to him a man who was uh, deaf and had a speech impediment, and they're asking that he would be healed. Now, in Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6, we're told what would happen when Jesus would come. When Jesus would come, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, we're told, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The lives of the blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute will change when Jesus comes. This man is two out of the four. He's a perfect candidate for Jesus to show his power. And I love what Jesus does with this man. Take a look at verse 33. He takes the man aside from the crowd privately. He doesn't make a spectacle of your suffering. Jesus deals with you respectfully. Jesus deals with you gently. Jesus gives you dignity. He pulls this man aside privately. It's just him and this man. Now, a lot has been said about this sticking his fingers in his ears, spitting on the ground, touching his tongue. We have to remember, this man's deaf. He can't hear. Jesus is doing simple sign language. He's letting him know, I'm going to do something about your ears. 
He spits, I'm going to make the function of your tongue happen at work again. Then he looks up to heaven to tell him, this isn't magic, this is the power of God that is about to enter into your life. He looks at the man in verse 34, he sighed and he said to him, be opened. What happened? His ears were opened, his tongue was released, they spoke plainly, healed instantly. What these miracles point us to is what Jesus would ultimately do for us through his redeeming work on the cross. Because once we did not have ears to hear God's voice speaking, didn't matter how many sermons we sat through, how many times we read our Bible, how many times we were in Sunday school class, the Bible went in one ear and it was like Charlie Brown's teacher. And we didn't hear it. Nor did we have tongues at one point that were able to speak and sing the praises of God, to tell of his goodness. But what does Jesus do? He gives us ears to hear God's word, God's voice speaking through the Bible. And all of a sudden we say, whoa, this stuff is true. And then our tongues get loosed and we begin to say, Jesus is Lord and everyone needs to know it. We begin singing his praises. I love I never noticed this before. In verse 34, he looks at the man and says, be opened. The man couldn't open up his own ears. He couldn't loose his own tongue. But Jesus is giving a command, be opened. What the man could not do for himself when the power of Jesus came upon him, he could do. Just like at one point we were not able to believe, we were stuck in our sins, dead. Jesus looked at our dead hearts and said, be opened. And our hearts opened to him and we trusted and we believed. He has healing power for helpless people. Sinners and sufferers can come to him to receive grace in their unworthiness and in their helplessness. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do what the crowd did that day. Look at verse 37. What did everyone leave that day saying? They were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. Isn't that the Christian testimony? Jesus does all things well. We live in a world where everyone's saying, look, look what I did well. Look at this great thing I did. Look at that great thing. I do all things well. And then Jesus enters the picture and we start singing, Jesus does all things well. And he gives us the message, go and tell Jesus does all things well. We get to spread around the news of how Jesus doesn't make mistakes, but he does all things well. Sometimes the testimony that we will tell will be more like the woman, where we tell people, you know, I was, I, I desperately needed help. I was in a trial and I asked God and he He seemed to not be answering, but I waited, and I trusted in his goodness, and Jesus did all things well. Other times, we tell people that we're like the deaf and mute man. I was a sinner. I couldn't believe. I couldn't see his goodness. I couldn't hear his voice. I couldn't sing his praise, and Jesus did all things well. He opened up my heart. We're going to end this service by singing a hymn, um, There is a Fountain. We often sing these hymns and we don't know the stories of the people who wrote them. This hymn was written by a man named William Cowper. Uh, William Cowper was a man who believed in, in Christ and loved Jesus. 
but he struggled severely throughout all his life. He was suicidal. He was in and out of insane asylums. And he struggled with manic depression all of his life. He struggled to be able to hear the goodness of God in his life. And sometimes he struggled to speak joyfully about the good news of what God had done in his life. But he believed Jesus does all things well, even if he couldn't see it in his lifetime. And in this hymn that we're about to sing, the closing line he says, knowing that sometimes he just couldn't bring himself, he couldn't free himself to really speak God's goodness. This is what he wrote. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Some of you here this morning, you're not able to sing the praises of God. You struggle. You're in that season where it seems like God is shutting the door rather than opening it for you. You look and, and you wonder, you may even be struggling, is God really good? Does he actually love me? We have the promise that in Christ, even if we don't see it in our lifetime, his blessing, that when we meet him in eternity, we'll be able to see our life in the rearview mirror and there will be one huge banner over our entire life narrative. Jesus did all things well. Sometimes we can't believe that. And that's where faith comes in. We preach to our own hearts. Heart, soul, I know you're not feeling it right now, but Jesus does all things well. You persevere. You lash yourself to those promises of God. Do not let go. God is a gracious God. He will prove himself true to his promises. Father, give us faith. You are a mysterious God. We don't always understand the way that you respond to our requests, but we trust in your goodness. And we know that if we trace the rainbow through the rain, we will feel the promise is not vain, that mourn shall tearless be. I pray for those this morning who find themselves much like the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman. They're throwing themselves in desperation and true faith, asking for good things of you. And it seems as though this is a time where you're testing their perseverance. I pray they'd persevere. Lord, help us to see, help us to tell, Jesus does all things well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.